Let me get my quick time rolling. Gonna get my quick time going. Nickelback? You sound like Nickelback right now. Gonna get my quick time rolling now. Gonna get my 16 thing guitar. And the sound of Did you just go Lil Nas X with Miley Cyrus's pops? No. Kind of felt like that. Nickelback. They sing like that with the big rock star and the bump bent up in the movie car. The nom 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 and the bump up there. Every bitty 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 with the bleach bond hair. Gonna get my quick time. Hang out at the coolest bars in the VIP with the movie stars and the man on down and on down. Yeah, gonna be a rock star. Gonna take my thing, fortune and fame. Gonna stamp my thing with my old thing. Stamp it down in the net with Billy Jean. How you gonna do it? Gonna take my horse down the old town road. Gonna ride till I can't no more. Gonna take my horse down the old town road. Gonna ride till I can't no more. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstrow. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstrow. That's Amin Al Hassan. I did it, Amin. I did it. I waited in the waters of the Player of the Month award announcement. Why did I do this? Why? I don't care. Who cares? I don't care who wins Player of the Month. What's more relevant, Player of the Month or Player of the Week? I would say Player of the Week because that's just like, all right, you had a, a, ga- a good game or two. More often than not, it's your team went 3-0, and and then who's the best player on that team? Who votes for that? I've never been asked to vote for this. I'm wondering, does the league do that? It just adjudicates? Yeah, I think it's the league. And the second thing is, like, the reason why I jumped in was because I was laughing. All the Bulls fans on my timeline are, like, flipping out because DeMar DeRozan did not get it over Joel Embiid. No, no, people don't fucking care, man. The Sixers went 8-6 and six in the month of December, and... The Bulls are on an eight-game win streak. And, of course, you know, DeMar was out for a few games. But I was trying to think. I, I hit up Chris Herring on Twitter. I said, has an eight and six player ever won Player of the Month award? <laughs> oh, my God. You you actually did the homework. No, I didn't. I just threw it out there. And what I did was I kind of dropped this, like, Molotov cocktail onto Twitter. And now all of the Sixers fans are upset at me. I mean. No, oh, you'll never be able to talk. About the process ever again. Oh, what would they have been if they didn't have Embiid? For, oh, and 14. Yeah, but you'd like that stat, boy. I forgot that Sixers fans are no longer like stat nerds anymore. Now they've, they've gone back to being bros, right? <laughs> yeah, we go out. We win. Are they bros now? Because I don't feel like they've adopted Maury the same way that they worshipped Hinky, right? Yeah, I think they're just ornery... Northeastern. Oh, they're back to being what they were before then. Yeah. Lunch pail, blue collar, just miserable. For a time that they're a bunch of whiny Pablo Torres is what they were. Here's the thing. Hmm. Actually, Joel Embiid in the month of December was plus 15 net rating. And on the bench, it was minus 20. Here's hmm. the thing. 
so I did that and I shouldn't have done it because player of the month, come on. And what I like is that they do the honorable mention player of the month. They do? They have to put out the jilted snubs for player of the month. I think I know something stupider than player of the month. If you're an NBA media member who races to announce when you get that NBA communications email of who the player of the month was, you race to tweet that shit out, you might be worse. You might be worse than the award itself. What I like is what Sean Hyken does. Do you see what Sean Hyken does on Twitter? <laughs> what does he do? <laughs> Sean Hyken has tweeted about the latest NBA press release. Sean Hyken will say, the NBA just released a press release. Eastern and Western Conference Players of the Week have been announced via email press release from the NBA. He doesn't say what's in the press release. He's just tweeting out. Oh, he- he just he's, he's oh, mocking he's mocking people on the timeline being like he is just saying that they've been announced obviously they've been announced over email the breaking news for him isn't who the player of the month is the breaking news for him is the nba has decided who the player of the month is yes that part is the breaking okay. he's making fun of whenever something like this is emailed from the league that everyone rushes to Twitter to to put it out. You know what I've I've thought about? If I put all the newsbreakers on text alert for me, so Stein, Chris Haynes, Shams, Adrian, all of them, right? And then proceeded to whenever I got an alert to within 60 seconds send out my own tweet saying the same news. A, how long would it take for people to be fooled into thinking I, too, am a newsbreaker? And B, how long would it take for the other newsbreakers to get upset that I am breaking their news a minute after they are? No, I don't think they they care at all. They, oh, <laughs> you're being, you being sarcastic? You're not breaking it, though. You're just... No, no, I'm not going to say according to Yahoo or according to ESPN. Like, so if Adrian tweets out, Damari Carroll signs a 10-day with the Anaheim Amigos, within 60 seconds after, like, I'm hearing that Damari Carroll's headed to the Anaheim Amigos. Without citing the source, yeah. Without citing a source or anything. It would absolutely cause pandemonium. Pandemonium for them. But I'm wondering how long it would take for casual people to start to, like, affiliate me with news breaking. Because I don't think casual people... Wait a sec, which one tweeted it first? Was it Adrian or was it Shams or was it Mark Stein? They don't. They just see it when they see it. But I have a big enough following already where I think I can I can squeeze it. It'd be hilarious because literally it's all basically me just checking my phone. <laughs> it's funny. Ethan Strauss just put out a, his new latest newsletter, basically a summary. He put out all his numbers. What's he doing? I don't know. What a foolish child. I don't know. He, but I like that. I like the hemming and hawing that he puts in there too. He's like, ah, people tell me this is stupid. I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because transparency. You know what's funny? As soon as I saw, like, he said, oh, I got a friend of mine who does pretty well, whatever. I wanted to do the age old game that me, you, and him used to play the whole, wow. <laughs> so Joe Rogan said that, how, or whatever, you know. Colin Coward, huh? I know who said oh, it. Oh, I know who it is. Yeah, I know. Like, I just want to. I just want to throw out the random. I've ridden in that guy's fancy car. Oh, there you go, Zach Harper, huh? Wow, <laughs> wow, Colin Coward, huh? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I didn't know that you were riding Colin Cowherd's car. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it is the reason why I bring it up is because he posted how readers got here, a percentage yes. breakdown of how his newsletter reaches people. And what was fascinating is 91% came from email, 7% came from direct. So I don't know what direct means. Maybe you can tell me. Uh, but one percent of his readership is coming from Twitter. One percent is coming from Twitter. Oh, direct means they went to houseofstrauss.substack.com. But one percent of his audience is coming from Twitter. I would say that that does not reflect people who go to it once and then sign up for the email. Yeah, that probably gets lumped over into the email stat. So I'm not sure how many people that would be that signed up for the email via Twitter. Basically, how many people are not subscribing, but every time he tweets, they're going to check it through Twitter versus people who checked it through Twitter said, huh, this is pretty good. I'm going to subscribe and then proceeded to never again get it from the Twitter link. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't follow Ethan like that on Twitter. I mean, I follow him technically, but I never see when he tweets. So for me to read his stuff, it has to be the email has to get sent out or I got to see you guys talking about it. It happened more often than anything else. You guys would be talking about what Ethan wrote in the chat. Yeah. In the chat. And I'm like, word. And then I go like, go back and read it. Cause I do think that people on Twitter do care about like the people that you see on Twitter are that inside Twitter, inside NBA Twitter that they would care that a me, no, actually, Mark Stein tweeted this out 60 seconds ago. But those people are so irrelevant to the... Because here's the thing. That's how, like, what's it? Legion NBA or whatever, NBA Central. That's how those accounts operate. They're not breaking news, but they got a lot of followers and a lot of engagement off their tweets because they literally just regurgitate. They're aggregators. They steal, they steal from regurgitate, if you want to use the word steal. We aggregate, gents. What you're talking about is stealing, I mean... Am I stealing? Am I stealing public information? How can I steal public information? It just further like accentuates how ridiculous this whole exercise is. Why do we care that Demari Carroll is going to the Anaheim Amigos? We shouldn't. So it's the week of the returns. I mean, yeah, it's the week of the returns. Kyrie Irving is set to return Wednesday night against the Indiana Pacers in Indianapolis, of course. So people listening to this, Tom, can know that tonight, the night of Wednesday, January 5th, you can go at the conclusion of the Nets-Pacers game onto the YouTubes to witness me and Tom break down everything regarding Kyrie Irving's return to play on the hardwood floor in the birthplace of basketball. Not quite because it's not Springfield, but Indiana people certainly like to pretend like that's where basketball was born, right? The soul of basketball. And you guys could do that by going to youtube.com slash Levitard and friends. And if you subscribe while doing it on that, not before, but while you do that, we're going to get the credit for it. So please Wait to subscribe, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wait, and you can partake in the show. You can hit us, uh, hit us up in the chat, and be a part of the show. It's a good time. It's late, you know. Might have had a few drinks. We're having a good time. A mean drunk is a different kind of drunk. I mean, get different kind of a mean. Could be hot. Could be cold. Yeah, a mean drunk is a different kind of drunk. That you were correct the first time, my friend. 
Speaking of drunk, I'm seven beers deep this afternoon. No, we, we've got returns for Kyrie Irving on Wednesday night. And then it looks like, according to Shams Charania, he joined a radio show like a few days ago and said, I'm not exactly reporting that that Clay's going to come back Sunday, January 9th. I'm just going to say everything's pointing in that direction. Did you like the breadcrumb that Clay left us yesterday walking into the tunnel? This is how I know it's a breadcrumb because who the hell holds up their hands one hand is all five fingers, and the other hand is just one finger. Five plus one is six. Six days from Monday, January 3rd, lands you on Sunday. Conspiracy! This is it right here. But if he comes back on Thursday, it means January 6th. Oh, the 6th. <laughs> oh, but if he comes back the 5th, it's 1-5. Oh. oh. Or maybe it's the 15th. What? Oh. You heard it here, folks. That's <laughs> how you do conspiracies, guys. You got to cover all your bases. Illuminati. Wait, what if it was, wow. We really, so it's either he's coming back Wednesday night. Stealing Kyrie's thunder, one five, okay, or he's coming back the sixth. It's not six days until my return. I mean, it's maybe he's coming back the sixth, so it would be also he could be coming back on Thursday, not Wednesday. But then six days could mean the Sunday, January 9th, or the fifteenth, which is Saturday, following that Sunday. So two Saturdays from now is the fifteenth. Which is going to be hard to do because they don't play on the Or the 51st. 15th. He might return on the 51st of, of January. Right. Which is the 20th of February, which... Oh, is he coming back All-Star break? He's coming back for the All-Star game on February 20th. We cracked the code. Illuminati. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Clay, Clay's coming back, it looks like, on Sunday. And... It looks like he's rescuing Steph Curry. Steph Curry has been in a shooting slump. The Warriors have been great despite it. But interestingly enough, Jordan Poole is coming off the bench and Steve Kerr says, oh, this is just about, you know, rehabilitating the conditioning, coming back from his long absence that Jordan Poole is just coming off the bench just because we're giving him a couple minutes here and there and ramping it up. But I mean, I posit to you, is there more to it? Is there more to Jordan Poole coming off the bench and having 32 points last night against the Miami Heat and winning that game than just, oh, he's ramping up his minutes? Or is this the look that the Golden State Warriors are going to have? They're going to demote, not demote, but put Jordan Poole in that Jordan Clarkson role and have Klay Thompson inserted into the starting lineup. Well, I think the more important thing that's happened more than Jordan Poole demoted or promoted or whatever is that Gary Payton has really worked his way into this lineup, into this rotation where he is, other than Draymond, he is their premier defensive player. Love him. And offensively, he is their, uh, he was their big man. He is their vertical spacer. 
He plays like JaVel McGee, basically, uh, for them. So the uh, the I think one of the things that's happened here, even if Clay were delayed another two months, I think this is your lineup now. It's Gary Payton alongside Steph Curry. Now, when Clay comes back, I don't believe he'll start immediately, right? We know he's probably going to be on a minutes restriction as he, you know, finds his sea legs. Uh, we don't know. The biggest question I have about Clay coming back is not his shooting or his offense. I think he'll be fine in that regard. It's going to be his defense. This guy was all world defensively uh, prior to getting hurt. And now we, we're going to have to see what his lateral movement looks like, his stamina looks like, his endurance looks like. And I don't think we're going to see much of that in the first couple of months of him being back. So Gary Payton is going to have to play a lot of minutes as a result. I like that. And especially because Jordan Poole um, anchoring that second unit, maybe he moves back in, but having Gary Payton on the team is huge for that Clay Thompson role of the lockdown defender, the guy who's just always in your grill, always in your Jersey. Clay Thompson used to be that role for this team. And now Jordan, not Jordan, Poole, Gary Payton can pick that up. And he has been picking up. I mean, it's insane. Like we've talked about it on this show before, just how Gary Payton is on the scrap heap for every for the taking for every NBA team, and suddenly the Golden State Warriors get him and figure out that oh, he's just basically a six foot three center, um, and we can put him in the dunker spot in pick and rolls, roll to the rim, and basically treat him like he's Javale, and it works amazingly. But you know, he improved. He's better. His shot is vastly improved. See, that's the part that's the development. The The providence of the Warriors is, hey, you can't shoot, but you can defend and you can dunk. So why don't we just make you like a big on offense and you just come here and give us all your great defense and we'll be cool. The development angle is, oh, by the way, we'll teach you how to shoot. It won't, it, you, won't you won't be pulling up off the dribble. People have known you as a bad shooter for so long that we will be able to tee you up for very wide open, feet set, relaxed three pointers. And as a result, he's shooting 41% from three on just under two attempts per game. 50% in the corners, by the way. Half his threes are coming from the corner. I mean, if you can find that, like PJ Tucker, same deal. If you can get a guy who can be not just average, but an elite corner three-point shooter as your like fifth option on offense, man, it's going to open up everything. Everything. And again, it, it, it goes back to the whole Golden State thing. It's like we don't have one-way guys. Everybody on this team, if you look through their rotation right now, when Clay comes back, it's going to be crazy because right now, these are all rotation players for the Warriors. Steph Curry, obviously. Wiggins, Draymond Green, Jordan Poole, Otto Porter, Iguodala, Damian Lee, Looney, Gary Payton, Juan Toscano Anderson, Bielitsa. And you can sprinkle some Kuminga that they're getting more and more looks for here and there. That's 11 dudes without Clay coming back, without Wiseman coming back. When those two guys come back, there's about 13 bona fide rotation guys. And I believe what's going to happen is they're going to play a lot. And then there are going to be guys that are going to go from you were a DNP tonight. Tomorrow you're playing 25 minutes. That's going to happen. And 
there's a precedent. We saw that happen in the first championship year. Guys like Justin Holiday, guys like uh, James Michael McAdoo, and then following years, Patrick McCaw, Jordan Bell, McCaw, Alfonso McKinney, right? All of these guys were guys that were going up and down in minutes, but the idea was they would play them in the regular season in real minutes so that I can turn to you and be confident when I put you in the game, you'll know what to do. And I think of Patrick McCaw is a guy I think of the most, actually, because I remember 2017, the, I believe it was game two, where they just broke the Cavs. They broke them, right? And it was backdoor cut after backdoor cut after backdoor cut by Patrick McCall. And I remember seeing that look of outer confusion on everybody's face for Cleveland. Like, whose man is that? Well, it's going to be a roster crunch, man. And there's going to be too many people to manage. Not for them. Not for the way they play. And not for the way they, they, they use their guys. Because usually when you have a roster crunch, you got 13 guys. That means, okay, well, this is the guy that plays every night. And now you are playing. You're not going to play anymore. And guys get feelings about that. But I do believe most of these guys are going to find a way on the floor. It may not be every night. It may be very situational. You're already seeing them rest Steph on second night of back-to-backs, right? You're going to do the same with Draymond. Iguodala is not playing in any back-to-backs. Like Once once this team has the full roster, they're not going to be doing that. Exactly. And, and Clay is another one that's probably not going to play any back-to-backs. And so if you're Jordan Poole, you're all right with not starting because you know, A, when I come off the bench, I get the super green light. I get to be Steph, basically, or try to be Steph. But then, B, there are going to be games where Steph's not going to play. And I'm going to get to start and put up obscene amounts of, of, of shots, right? I mean, last night he had 17 shots in, what, 26 minutes? <laughs> like, he's going to get them up. Yep. I look at Draymond coming back from, from protocols, and I look at... You know Steph Curry and and the the slump that he's in, but they're still the number one team in the in the Western Conference, and it's one of these things where you look at the Warriors. What's going to derail the Warriors from their throne? And like, yes, if Draymond hurts his knee or Steph hurts his knee, okay. But I ask you this because Clay Thompson is the type of player that he doesn't need the ball in his hands to succeed. In, in terms of like, he's not Luca where he needs the ball in his hands and dribble out the air of the ball. He's a guy who famously never dribbles the ball. I think the stat was when he dropped, you know, 60 points or whatever that I put out on Twitter that he dribbled like 11 times on all of his shots. In the game. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. On all of his points, he he dribbled 11 times, right? So for Clay, it's going to be about movement. It's going to be about chemistry with Draymond and Steph. I almost think you bring him back with the starting lineup. Yeah, I believe he'll start, but I don't know if he'll start right away. I think you start him right away. Really? Because in my opinion, I feel like they want to get him reacclimated after two years away from the game. Bring him on with Steph. Bring him on with Draymond. Bring him on with Loon. And that way, you're not having to not just integrate with the team, you're integrating with a new roster coming in the second unit. And I think just the vibe... I just think it makes a lot more sense for him to come into the come into the game starting unit after he's warmed up rather than coming off the bench. 
Okay, you sold me. I mean, the season has started, sports betting, trying to think of how to take advantage of some of these early fluctuations in the score. Are the Bulls really this good? Warriors, really? this good? And should we really be burying some teams that are starting out with a little bit of a rough start? Well, some people aren't really into betting yet, but I'm telling you, it adds so much more to the watching experience. So fun. If you want to get deeper into this stuff, get smarter about betting on sports or just the NBA, you got to get on with the daily tip. Just to see how it feels, Tom, you got to understand that when you're out there with action on the game. It can make what would be a boring game absolutely amazing. Think about this. What if the line on this game I'm watching right now was 12 and a half points, right? Yep. It's a 14-point game under a minute to go. Most people would say, boring, turn it off. But if I got action on the game, I'm watching every last second because I need to see if someone's going to hit that last-minute shot. It takes it from 14 to 11 and makes me from a loser into a winner. So the Daily Tip is a podcast that gives you kind of some insights, some edge, make you smarter about betting and just the betting experience. You learn some things. The hosts, Michael Jenkins and Chelsea Messenger, they break down the big takeaways and make sure you know everything you need to get smarter and feel like you know what's going to happen. With featured guests like bookmakers, Odyssey insiders, and bet MGM experts, you always feel like you got a fresh take on the action. And your friends, your buddies at the bar or in your group chat, you know what they're going to be thinking? Where'd you get that information from? Where'd you get that? It's from the Daily Tip. Uh, Feel like you're an insider that you know the ins and outs of sports betting. And you know what? You're right, I mean, Watching the game on a Tuesday night, the game's a blowout. But there's always an angle that you can figure out a way to get in on the action. So as much fun as it is to bet on the game, it's even more fun when you got the inside scoop and listen to Michael and Chelsea. If you're ready to bet with an edge, tune into the Daily Tip presented by BetMGM. Listen weekdays in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern on Odyssey, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so I'm not going to get into the whole player of the month thing. The Kyrie Irving stuff, we'll see what happens Wednesday night. Go check it out on YouTube. If you, if you somehow missed the monologue by Amin at the top, we're going to do a YouTube.com slash Lebetard and Friends post-game show. You got people fast-forwarding the podcast? Yeah. They're just tuning in right now. They got... In case you join us, welcome back. It's the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haber Show, and that's Amin El Hassan. My producer is Anthony Mays. Welcome back to the show. What's going on in the league? <laughs> We're going straight to the Bell Road Toyota hotline. What the, my Bell Road Toyota? <laughs> hey, Mike. How's it really, really, really? Hey, hey, hey. That's my, that my Chris Russo right there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Was he having a stroke? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he Daffy Duck? <laughs> That's when he gets really upset and he has no breath left. So, I mean, I want to take a second to talk about Josh Giddy. Oh, yes. G'day, mate. That's his name. Josh G'day, mate. G'day. Josh G'day. Mate. G'day, mate. Shrimp on the Bobby. The rookie from Oklahoma City. He's from Australia, but he plays for Oklahoma. 
Are you going to do this whole segment in that in that voice? Perhaps. Depends if it'll get me Vegemite. Call that a knife? I come from a land down under. That's a knife. In the when blunder. Can you feel, can you feel the thunder? Oh, there it is. Can you feel the thunder? And he plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder. All right, go ahead and talk to Josh Giddy. <laughs> Did we figure out his theme song? The rest of the time, he asked that they have to play that. Yep. Can you feel, can you feel the thunder? But is he going to be annoyed by that? He's like, oh, because I'm the Australian. Oh, because I'm... I'm from the land down good day, and I put another shrimp on the barbie. The Milwaukee Bucks, when Andrew Bogut played there, every time he did anything, they played it obnoxiously at the Bradley Center. Houston, I remember, I remember having a conversation with Shaq. What was the most annoying arena drop? And Shaq was, Shaq's submission was Houston when Yao Ming would score. <laughs> This is so bad. The Houston Rockets would play. Isn't that Roy Kent? No, wait, it's, uh, what's his name? Oh, Jamie Tartu. In my head, I'm just there in the crowd cheering my name after I scored a goal tonight. Jamie Tartu. As undeniably catchy as that tune is, I need you to cut the crap right now. Josh Giddy. Youngest player ever, Tom, to drop the old triple double. Got me thinking, I mean, do they mean anything anymore? Do triple doubles excite you? I mean, because I feel like if Josh Gaudet is dropping the youngest triple double of all time, do we need to recalibrate what triple doubles mean? Do they just handing these things out like chiclets these days? At first, I was like, oh, wow, like this bodes well for this young man. Youngest triple-double ever? And I thought about all the different great all-round players that we have in our league and have had through history, especially the ones that skipped high school or came in one and duns or whatever. And then I saw the list of the top five, the youngest, and they're all guys that were drafted like in the last four years. <laughs> yeah, it is less to do with the trajectory of your career and just when you had your career. When Amin put this to me, I thought it was LeBron. Turns out it's not. I mean, Josh Gaudet beat out who? LaMelo Ball. Which I feel like LaMelo's on a trajectory to be a star in this league. Sure. But then I started having trouble. When you asked me this, I started having trouble after LaMelo Ball. And and you were like giggling when I was doing this. Because the guy who's next after LaMelo Ball is someone that I, I, I totally forgot. Taking you guys behind the scenes. Tom guessed. Off the bat, LaMelo and Luca. Luca's fifth. Fifth oldest now. Ancient Luca Doncic. He's fourth, but yeah. Oh, fifth was, is Lonzo. And then third was the one that Tom couldn't get. And it turns out it was a forgotten man. I told him it's a former number one overall pick. And Tom guessed, is it John Wall? And I said, nope. Think more recent. And he racked his brain and he just couldn't figure it out. And finally I told him, it's Markel Fultz. How could I forget? Markel Fultz. And I even said, oh, with the with the magic. It wasn't with the Sixers, but no. In fact, it was with the Sixers. In game 82, when everybody's resting their players, Markel Fultz, 19-year-old Markel Fultz, 
on April 11th, he dropped 13 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists. The bare minimum, basically, triple-double. And he only played so many minutes, so that's okay. But the larger point here, I mean, is that today triple-doubles happen a lot more often. And I don't know if it's about the players are better or that they're more, I guess, hyper-tuned to getting triple-doubles because they watch Russell Westbrook get average a triple-double. So now it matters more. You get more publicity when you get a triple-double now. But I kind of feel like there's other things that are going on here. Namely, because in recent history, there's been like this skyrocketing of triple-doubles. Where in 2011-2012, there was a whopping 13 triple-doubles. The entire season, 2011-2012. Rajon Rondo had six of them. <laughs> and then here's the list. Carmelo Anthony, J.J. Barea, Serge Ibaka, Andre Iguodala, Kyle Lowry, Joakim Noah, and Kemba Walker. Rondo had six, and the rest of that list had one each. And now we're on pace for 118. I think the most I- impressive thing is that Russell Westbrook, who at this point is on the cusp of going to the NBA Finals, as a starting point guard for the Thunder, he's in his fourth year in the league and doesn't have a single one. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a single one. Like, think about the guy who's become synonymous with the triple-double in a very successful season for him, both team-wise and individually, didn't have a single triple-double. And that was a decade ago, ladies and gentlemen. So what happened over the past decade that now triple doubles are happening everywhere? I mean, like it's, there's, there's one, if you tune into an NBA night, seven, eight, nine games on the slate, your chances are you're going to catch a triple double. Whereas nine years ago, 10 years ago, you wouldn't catch that in the entire season. I would posit, Tom, that it's two things. Because I know the triple-doubles of yore, like the heyday of the triple-doubles, Oscar averaged a triple-double, all that stuff. It happened at a time where there were literally like 130 possessions a game, right? The pace was astronomical. And because there's an astronomical pace, that means there are more opportunities to do all of the counting stats. Pace is astronomical, and field goal percentages were horrendous. So rebounds are easy to come by or easier to come by because there's just so many of them. And so I know, so uh, the pace obviously slows down over the years. Yeah, right now pace is what, at like 98 possessions per 48 minutes, according to basketball reference. And back then it was estimated. Again, we didn't have a full box score back then in this in 63 when Oscar Robertson averaged a triple-double. But the pace estimate was somewhere around like one one twenty seven, hundred and twenty seven possessions compared to the ninety eight now. So that's thirty about thirty extra possessions. You're essentially playing an extra quarter of basketball. It's like playing five quarters to pad your stats. Now I'm not saying Oscar Robertson's a stat padder. Stat padder. Absolutely calling him a stat padder. Compiler. He's a compiler. Shouts to Sugats. But that has to be incorporated is that all 48 minutes are not created equally. So now... So since then, since then, to finish my point about pace, pace came down through the 70s uh, post-merger. Surprise, surprise. I wonder how that happened. Better basketball arrived. And then in the 80s, I'm guessing, this is... I, I know you put it in your in your notes, but I 
don't remember what it said. I'm guessing the 80s pace was a little higher than it was in the 70s. And then we hit the 90s and then pace plummets in the early 2000s. And then it climbs a little through the mid 2000s through the 2011-12 season. And we're climbing ever since. Um, am I right in describing the pace like that? Yeah, I think pace is a huge part of this story. Pace is driving a lot of this is that there's more possessions in a game. So you might have finished 10 years ago. You might have finished with 17, 7, and 9. Whereas with the extra few possessions here and there, you're now finishing with 20, 10, and 10. So that's part of this. What else is going on? I mean, the other thing that I suspect is going on is the advent of positionless basketball. It is no shock to me that Russell Westbrook in 2011-2012 has zero triple-doubles as Oklahoma City plays a big traditional lineup. Perkins at center, Ibaka at the four, Durant, who was an excellent rebounder as well, at the three, uh, and then was it Tabo at the two? Yeah, it was Tabo and, and James Harden off the bench. Yeah, Tabo also a good rebounder. So Westbrook, beyond like there being less rebounds to be had because the possessions were slower. There were less missed shots per game, but also less available rebounds for him because he's playing with a bunch of great rebounders. And it wasn't imperative on him to rebound that well, although he is a good rebounder, because someone else more than likely got it and were off out on the brick on the outlet. Compare and contrast with um, where basketball went Soon thereafter, I believe in that series, where the the Eric Spolster's chess move was to go small that Scott Brooks never matches up with, thus ushering in the concept of, hey, instead of having a traditional four-man, I'm going to have a Shane Battier at the four. And so now, because our lineups are smaller, the necessity for gang rebounding and other players who are not traditionally looked at as rebounders rises. And as the lineups get smaller and smaller, it turns into there's a lot of opportunities for a Russell Westbrook to get rebounds, not only because we're playing faster, but because I'm not fighting a Perkins and an Ibaka on my team and a Eric Dampier and a, and a Chris Bosh on the other team. I'm fighting Shane Battier's and, uh, you know, whoever's, and that makes life a lot easier. Interestingly enough, in that season, Russ averaged just five and a half assists. He averaged 4.6 rebounds and his assist totals went from 8.2 or averages went from 8.2 the previous season down to 5.5. Trying to remember what happened there. Harden got better. Harden. Yeah. Harden started being Harden. Harden became what he blossomed into. He became that guy who goes out there and goes and gets, becomes a, a primary playmaker for that team. So he was a six man, but he was a six man the same way Ginobili was a six man. He's like really a six man in name. He comes in, and as soon as he came in, he was on ball and Russ was off ball, and uh, he became uh, uh, the primary playmaker for this team. What do you think about like when you talk about LeBron winning that title and then going positionless basketball? We're now part of the NBA lexicon is heliocentricity, the idea of one guy having all the gravity, a Luka Doncic, a LeBron James, a Nikola Jokic, to run your entire offense through 
and basically have him as the focal point of everything that happens in your offense and spread the floor around him. I think that has lent itself to a lot more drive and kick opportunities where you're either you're going to do spread pick and roll, you're going to run the pick and roll, and if they throw two at the ball, then you then you pass out of it, or you try to attack, split the split the double, and attack the rim. If the guy rotates at the rim, then you're going to kick out to an open shooter, and I under, underline that open shooter. So now it's Shane Battier wide open more often than not, and he's getting a good look. So I think once LeBron James won his title, I think we started hearing more about positionless basketball. I think that point that you just made is different from, is a separate point from positionless basketball. The heliocentricity is its own point, which is we went from all these varied offenses and offenses where guys were dumping it into the post and posting up to do the success of us in Phoenix and then thereafter Miami. It became, no, no, I'm just going to give the ball to my guy that makes plays. Mm-hmm. We're going to set a screen. And now a defender, either you guys are going to suck somebody in. So we're playing, we're bringing a third guy in to stop this because no one could guard a pick and roll two on two. Or he's getting to the front of the rim. And so the assist lanes have almost become paint by number. There's going to be a guy in that corner, a guy in that corner, and a big guy lurking on the baseline uh, opposite from where your other big guy is rolling or your other big guy is going to pop and then the other guy is going to... So it's just like, okay, my reads are here, 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 or here almost every single time. And that inflates your assist numbers along with the higher pace and the positionlessness. Totally. So if we're going to say triple doublers are on the rise, um, you know, like every... In the 2020s, we're seeing 11% of games are going to have a triple-double. Whereas in the previous decade of the 2010s, it was at 5%. The previous decade, the 2000s, from 2000 to 2010, we saw it at 3%. So it goes 3% of games to 5%, and now it's at 11%. The only time that it was ever close to this was in the 60s. Again, different game back then. A lot quicker possessions, up and down, helter-skelter, a lot of missed field goal attempts. But I do think that it's interesting that, like, there were enough assists to go around. Like, yeah, they missed every shot, and so there were a lot more rebounds to be had. But the fact that maybe Oscar Robertson was that heliocentric, where they just gave him the ball and let him create the entire offense, way ahead of his time, that he was able to get 10 assists a game. But also, he played a fifth quarter every game. Again, going back to your example of the 17, 9, and 7 guy, right? if you give that guy, instead of giving that guy, like, what is that, five or six more possessions, as has happened over, over time over the last 20 years, you're giving him literally a quarter's worth, an extra fifth quarter of possessions. Fuck, man, he's definitely getting a triple-double then. I think what makes Oscar special is that despite having the advantages of pace and perhaps even heliocentricity, he didn't have the advantage of positionless basketball, meaning he had to get all them rebounds despite the Russells and the Wilts and the... the, um, Elgin, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And all these other great rebounders of his of his his contemporary era, 
He had to go up in there and get rebound with those dudes, which is incredible because Oscar, while a wide human being, isn't necessarily a very tall NBA player. I believe he's like 6'5". But he's 6'5 in both directions, right? Like this. Yeah, he's 6'5", 205. I feel like 205 is a very, very, very conservative estimate as to where Oscar was weight-wise. But yeah, man, that, that that makes this a whole lot harder of a proposition. Way harder of a proposition for him in a way that the modern-day triple doublers didn't have to deal with. So we're talking about how common it is to see a triple-double. This stat kind of jumped off the page for me. There are currently 100 active players who have tallied a triple-double in their career. 100 players. 100. That's a lot. I don't know what number I was thinking. Maybe maybe 53 NBA players have gotten a triple-double. But I think about a guy like Demonis Sabonis. Came into the league as like a, a corner three-point specialist for the, for the Thunder, by the way, for Russell Westbrook. And is now racking up a bunch of triple doubles as the like focal point of that Indiana offense and just how he would have been treated 10 years before he came into the league, how things would change. He would have been strictly, strictly a big, we wouldn't have all those opportunities to make those assist plays for one, for other guys because he would have, they would have just stuck them in the block. So a hundred players have gotten a triple double. The top five goes Russell Westbrook with 193, LeBron James with 102, James Harden has 65, Jokic is 63, and then Doncic comes in fifth with 38. But the other thing I want to hit on here is one of the things you hear a lot about defending Russell Westbrook's hunting for triple doubles is the fact that his win percentage is so high in those triple-double games. Um, And so I looked this up. Team win-loss record in triple-double games. Russell Westbrook has 193 triple-doubles in his career. And the Thunder, the Wizards, the Rockets, the Lakers, in total, his teams have gone 142 and 51 for a 736 win percentage in Russell Westbrook triple-double games which is better. I don't know what the exact stat, how much better it is than when he doesn't get a triple-double. But I, I have two points about this. One is, okay, what's LeBron? LeBron in his 102 triple-doubles in his career, 78-24 and 24 for a, a win percentage of 765. That's better than Russell Westbrook. Okay, what about James Harden? James Harden in his 65 triple-doubles in his career, his teams are 52-13, and 13, a win percentage of 800. Nikola Jokic, 63 triple doubles, 49 and 14. Win percentage, 778. All of those guys have a better win percentage with triple doubles than Russell Westbrook. So then I got to be thinking to me, okay, so it's not just Russell Westbrook that has a high win percentage when he gets a triple double. It's just about everyone who has a, you know, gets a triple double. So what are we really measuring here? I think it's really just about your teammates hitting shots. At a certain point, it's a make or miss league. And what that win percentage is really calculating or really telling us is, did the supporting cast around your heliocentric star hit their shots that night? And that's going to drive wins. Like that's going to drive wins. It's not necessarily that Russell Westbrook or James Harden is finding open shooters better that night. It's that the shots happen to go in. And when those role players are hitting their shots, guess what? You're going to have a better shot at winning. Yeah, I I kind of feel like there's a 
correlation, not necessarily a causation in those numbers. And, and I like the way you explained it because I think that that makes sense within my suspicion is that it's not that triple doubles are good for wins. Like, oh, and also, the yes, so it's not that triple doubles are good for wins. It's just that these guys are making shots. Hence, that's good for wins. There's nothing magical about like the triple double. It's arbitrary. Ten, the ninth, the ninth assist is just is not terribly worse off than the tenth assist. It's not like you're you're suddenly vaulting yourself into another category of, of greatness by that tenth assist. Seth Partnow said, I, I saw an excerpt from his book where he talked about this principle, and I don't remember what it's called, but the idea is when people confuse correlation and causation and then begin, or, or even if it is like, hey, we win every time you get a triple-double. So rather, rather than just play the same winning basketball that you do and you happen to get a triple-double, you end up perverting your goal into getting a triple-double with the belief that it will magically turn into a win. There's a term for that. I thought I had bookmarked or liked the tweet where he talked about it, and it turns out I didn't, and it kind of felt dumb afterwards. Oh, you mean Good Arts Law? Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Good Arts Law. How does he define it? All right, so Good Arts Law, chapter four in uh, Seth Partnow's book, The Mid-Range Theory, he opens with a quote from anthropologist Marilyn Strathern. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. That's good arts law. That's exactly it, right? And and the idea here is the goal is, hey, if we space the court, we get more room, for instance, for our best player to do what he wants, right? To go one-on-one coverage or whatever. Well, that means we want to shoot more threes. How many threes? Well, so-and-so shoots this many threes. So if we shoot at least this many threes, that'll lead to us being better. And instead of like trying to replicate the things that lead to success, which are actual the spacing, you turn it into the perversion of, yeah, well, they they shot 33s a game. That's the answer. And and I feel like there's a lot of that going on with triple doubles. Seth finishes that chapter by saying, nobody remembers the second four-minute miler, and Westbrook went on to average triple doubles each of the next two seasons and then did so again in 2020-21 while not receiving a single first-place MVP vote in any of those seasons. So his point being, we were caught up in the novelty of Russell Westbrook averaging a triple-double, and some of that season why he won MVP that year was because of those ridiculous shots, game winners he was hitting. Um, He was incredibly clutch that season. So it wasn't just about the triple-double, but I remember vividly those conversations, those MVP conversations, centered mostly... Dude, he just averaged a triple-double and you're trying to give it to Kawhi Leonard? Well, Harden was the... I was saying Kawhi that year. I absolutely voted for... for, And I I don't regret it because I go back to... He did something that I thought would never happen. I thought it would never happen. I just never thought it was possible. And obviously, we now know of all those shifting tides, how it became possible... But the reality is this tide didn't shift that season. They'd been shifting for a while. And he was the one who did it. And after that, obviously ushered in, I think, where we are now, Tom. That's how we ended up here. Because the guy who won MVP did it because he averaged a triple-double. 
it carries more weight now. Everyone wants yes. to go get that triple-double because it has more meaning. It's going to get me an MVP or at least get more accolades. And sure enough, I mean, to pull things full circle, who won the Rookie Player of the Month award? Josh, good day, mate. That's right. So we went down a little rabbit hole here on triple-doubles. Hope you learned something there. Also, I'm still now, I'm going to call him G'day now from here on out. So thank you for that, Amin. You're welcome. Who is the most unlikely triple-double? That'd be a good trivia fact. How about this? I have a Tom's trivia for you, Amin. Right now, I got a Tom's trivia for you. Okay. We talked about Josh Giddy with the youngest triple-double of all time. Who is the oldest triple-double of all time? The oldest player with a triple-double or the oldest player... To get his first triple-double. Oldest player to have a triple-double at the time of the triple-double. Okay, I would say it is Michael Jordan. No, Michael Jordan is nowhere near that list. So he didn't have one in Washington? Wow. Come on, you ain't passing the ball. You really think Michael Jordan on that Wizards team is getting 10 assists? Your Stackhouse had to score, didn't he? <laughs> okay, for the reference, Michael Jordan in that first year in Washington, average app, he averaged five assists a game. One double-digit assist game that season. Who would be the oldest? Give me an era at least. It's in the 21st century. Okay, so in the last 20 years. Old guy. Kobe Bryant? Close. Nope, he's 17th on the list. Jason Kidd? Yeah, he's on the list, but he's fourth oldest with the Dallas Mavericks at age 37 and 343 days. Jason Kidd is fourth on the list. Tim Duncan? Number two on the list at 38 years old, 224 days, just after winning that 2014 title against Memphis. He had 14 points, 10 assists, 10 rebounds. But the number one oldest dude to have a triple-double was in 2003. He had 10 points, 10 assists, and 11 rebounds. Drum roll, please, Mays. Drum roll. Carmelo? Carl Malone. Laker Carl Malone, right? 2003. Laker Carl Malone early in the season. And they were talking, they are talking a lot of smack about it too. Who's the oldest player to have his first triple double? I did not look this up, but my guess is it's Charles Oakley. Why is Charles Oakley? Because he's on the list for oldest. He's 13th on this list of oldest triple doubles. And Charles Oakley did it with the Toronto Raptors. And I'm here to say, I did not know that Charles Oakley ever got a triple-double. But he did it when he was 36 years old. (laughs) He's older than Kobe, older than Magic. Charles Oakley, triple-double, who knew? Well, look up how many triple-doubles Charles Oakley has. He has three. Two in Chicago early in his career, and then he had one with the Raptors right before he rejoined the Bulls for that fateful season. So I got a news story here that says that Mason Plumley was the oldest player to record his first triple-double since Patrick Ewing got one at age 33. Ooh, that's pretty good. So Ewing is up there, apparently, at least in the last 25 years. Yeah, Patrick Ewing, one career triple-double. He was 33 years old. Hey, what about Matt Barnes? Wow, Matt Barnes, one triple-double. And it was at 36 years old. That stat can't be right. Or CBS Sports is wrong. Matt Barnes on his basketball reference page says he has one career triple-double. Oh, it says he's the oldest center. See, CBS.com fucked it up. 
because they're they're referencing a tweet from Stats Inc. Mm. And Stats Inc. said he's the oldest center. So yeah, Matt Barnes might be the answer. Shout out to Mark Stein. Our guy Mark Stein in 2016 tweeted out from his BlackBerry 10. Memphis's Matt Barnes, according to Elias, is the oldest player in NBA history at the time of first career triple-double. 36 years and two days. It's a wrap! Bang gavel! Matt Barnes is the oldest player in NBA history at the time of their first career triple-double. We did it, gang. So we're going to have to have Matt Barnes on the pod, and we're going to have to quiz him. We're going to do a little bit of a quiz with him. Can you name the players that gave you those 10 assists? Or that you gave 10 assists to. I mean, they gave it to him because he hadn't done it before, so it's almost a gift from them. He No, no. He gave them. They, they've always fucked him over by missing shots. <laughs> Finally, they fucking gave you guys this gift. Do you have a rant today, Amy? Something that's been irking you? All right, guys. So uh, I don't know if you saw this. Kevin Porter Jr. has been suspended a game by the Houston Rockets. This after he got into a shouting match with assistant coach John Lucas and uh, left the team at halftime. Just got in his car and went home rather than stuck than stick around. And obviously, Kevin Porter Jr. is a guy who's on his third chance, technically, right in basketball. He messed up when he was college in college. That's why he dropped a thirty as opposed to being a top 10 pick, like his talent suggests. Uh, And then he messed up in Cleveland, which led them to basically say, look, we're going to try and trade him. And if we can't trade him, we're going to cut him. But he's he's no longer here. He's not persona non grata. And now he's on his third chance in Houston. And so you might wonder, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is that the guy he got in a shouting match with was John Lucas. If you're younger, you might think of John Lucas as, yeah, the guy with the funny mustache uh, who's an assistant coach on the Rockets. If you're a little bit older, you might say, oh, yeah, he's John Lucas III's father. But if you're old and wise and like me, you know that John Lucas was once the number one overall pick in the NBA draft. A great player. Uh, who was also, by the way, a world-class tennis player. I don't know if you guys knew that one. Um, who, whose career as a basketball player was derailed and almost lost altogether due to his addiction to alcohol. He was an alcoholic. And uh, he managed to get himself cleaned up and got his life together. And he dedicated the rest of his basketball coaching, because he coached tennis as well, by the way. He coached Marty Fish. He coached Steffi Graf. Like, the dude was, like, real deal in tennis as well. But in coaching basketball, he was known as the reclamation project guy, the guy who gives second chances to people that everybody had given up on, right? Uh, Oftentimes, his detriment, because as a head coach, he didn't win a whole lot of games because he just kept having these reclamation projects. Some of them turned out great. Some of them didn't. Some of them turned out great, not in a basketball sense, but he saved lives. So the idea that Kevin Porter Jr. would get that upset about something that a guy said, the guy who is known for helping people like you, Kevin Porter Jr., is kind of really bizarre. And it's just like, my thing was, look, I don't know what Coach Lucas said to him. He might have said some shit that, 
by today's standards, is offensive and should not be tolerated by anyone. Buddy, let me tell you something. The answer is never ditching the team, the game, the arena. No matter what the disrespect was, I would have, even as a person who values privacy and keeping things in-house, I would have rather Kevin Porter Jr. stick around, sit in the locker room, like not come out, and then talk to the media afterwards and say, he said something to me that was so disrespectful. I felt like I couldn't go back out there and perform. Even if you don't even say what the disrespectful thing was. I would have rather that. Because the reality is, when you leave, man, that leaves a black-ass mark on you. And I know everyone else this weekend got caught up and talked about Antonio Brown leaving in the middle of the game. But what Kevin Porter Jr. is just as damaging, because like Antonio Brown, maybe not for the same reasons, but like Antonio Brown, Kevin Porter Jr. is a guy who is living on multiple chances multiple leases on life, so to speak. He's a talented player. I think he's a good kid. But dumb fucking move in that moment. Kevin Porter, if you come at the king, don't miss. Best not miss. Who is the king? Is it John Lucas? Is John Lucas the king? John Lucas, yeah. And then I missed. I missed. You missed. If you come at the king, don't miss. You came at Kevin Porter and you missed. What the hell was that, Tom? You missing. Jesus. I just missed. The quote. You should just get up and leave in the middle of this podcast. If you come at the prince, you best miss, not uh, miss. If you come at the prince, you best not mince. Maze, I feel like we should just get up and let him keep trying this, and that's the end of the pod. If you come at the emperor, you best not stumble or we're close. What are you saying? Come at the czar, you best not miss far. Come at the head honcho if you better not wear your poncho and, and rain on your poncho. Come with the chief, you better not queef. No. <laughs> That's how you end the show, ladies and gentlemen. There's that story of 90 Day Fiance or whatever who's selling her farts and she quit, man. I mean, come on. We got to end the show. She quit selling the farts? She had a heart attack scare, so. So she can't fart anymore? She can't fart anymore. (laughs) It's tough out there. It's tough. I was like, and? People are having to retire from selling their farts younger and younger. It's just like triple doubles.